Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would speak to our hearts now, that we will be open to your word and that we would live in right response to it by praising and following the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please open in your Bibles to the passage that Kathy read for us before, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, I wonder, who do you live to please in life? Who do you live to please? Yourself? Your family? Your friends? Society. Or put another way, how do you determine what's right and wrong in life? How do you gauge it? Well, for some, it's by family tradition, uh, what you were taught when you were growing up. For others, right and wrong is determined by what they watch on TV or, or talk back radio or movies. Paul writes at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. For the Christian, right and wrong is determined by God. For the Christian, ethics is found in the scriptures, the very word of God. In verse 1 of our passage, the word live is the word walk. It's a metaphor Paul uses to describe the Christian life 32 times in his letters. Paul is urging the Thessalonians to walk in a manner pleasing to God. As, as Paul comes to do this, it's crucial that we get things in the right order. The structure of biblical ethics is always a statement about what God has done first, then the command to live a certain way in response. Uh, we find this throughout the whole Bible, and it's the structure of Paul's letters. For example, in Romans, Paul establishes the great truths about what God has done for us, then come chapter 12, he writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Our downfall comes whenever we get this order around the wrong way. Over the years, there's been many church halls I've been in where the Ten Commandments are written up on a board. And nine times out of ten, they start with, You shall have no gods before me. But that's not how they start, do they? God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, the way God's people were to live was rooted in their new identity, that they'd been redeemed, they'd been rescued. 
So it is as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He's already reminded them of their identity. How they've turned to Jesus, been forgiven, made right with God and adopted as his children. It's only after he establishes that, that he then turns to say, Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Be who you are in Christ, Thessalonian Christians. Keep it up. That's what Paul says to them here. Paul starts broad in urging them to live a life that pleases God. Then he moves to two specific areas. The first, sexual morality. And the second, love among believers. So the first, sexual morality. A talk of sex may make us a little uncomfortable. A generation ago, it was a taboo topic. But the culture you and I live in is a sex-obsessed culture. We live in a culture where notes of praise are written upon the death of someone like Hugh Hefner. You know the man, the founder of Playboy, the man who built an empire out of the objectification of women. Oh, but he was crucial in the advent of the sexual revolution, people have written. And wasn't that a great thing? What does Paul single out sex in writing to the Thessalonians, urging them to live to please God? Well, Thessalonica was a culture not dissimilar dissimilar to ours. A culture where there was much confusion about sexual ethics. Our culture assumes that everyone has had a sexual experience. Indeed, the message we are told is that unless you express yourself sexually, you will not be fulfilled. Thessalonica was a port city in the Roman Empire on a busy trading route, all of which combined to make Thessalonica a place which attracted business that catered to sexual immorality. That prostitution was just a means of income like any other. Adultery, common. And sexual misconduct, rife. One man called Demosthenes described things like this. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure. Concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being and wives to bear us legitimate children. In Thessalonians, Paul's concern is for Christians. He's writing to Christians who have come out of this world. Verse 3, he writes, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Paul is eager 
that these Christians not only start well in the Christian life, but go on and finish well too. He's concerned for their growth, for their sanctification. A big word, it just means the process of being made more like Jesus. It's got to do with holiness. God's people are to be set apart and separate from the world in their conduct. Paul says it's God's will that we be sanctified. That God has purchased his people by the blood of Jesus. And as they walk through this life, God desires to make them more like his son. And Paul says that one way God does that is as we learn to control our bodies. As we view sex in its right place. And the Bible's quite unambiguous about the place for sex. The place God has designed sex for is within a union, a marriage between one man and one woman. And so sexual immorality, from the Bible's perspective, is sex between two people who aren't married to one another, and sex between two people of the same gender, to name just two. The message here in 1 Thessalonians 4 seems clear. Sanctification, the process by which God makes us more like Jesus, and sexual immorality are incompatible. If you're a Christian, then God has given you a new heart. A heart that desires to please God. A heart that desires God to change you and to make you more like Jesus. If that's you, if that's me, God calls us to control our bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. Uh, our culture tells us that unless you're having sex, you're missing out. The Bible tells us that is a lie. Sex is a good gift given by God to a married couple. A way they can express their love for one another and, if they are able to, God's way of producing children. But sex is far from the high goal in life. The high goal in life is, is knowing you are deeply loved by your Creator. So loved that He sent His Son to die and rise for you to deal with your rejection of Him so that you might be forgiven, be his child and know the hope of heaven. The fulfilment in life isn't found in sexual expression. It's found only in knowing the Saviour. We might read a passage like this and think, well, it seems all too hard. It's too hard to go against the grain of our culture. And it can be. But how are we able not to give in to temptation? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 8. 
In verse 8, he tells us that we have been given God's Holy Spirit. We're not alone. God lives in us by his Spirit to mould us and shape us to be like Christ. It's not just up to us. And if we have stumbled, what hope is there for us? What reason ought we not to give up? Well, Jesus provides forgiveness. We have all sinned and wronged others. We have all been disobedient to God's command for purity. But the wonderful news is that we don't have to wait until Jesus returns to deal with it. We can deal with it now. We can confess our sins now and turn away from our sins. We can come to Jesus now so that on the day of judgment we will be safe. We can find forgiveness now so that when we meet Jesus the judge, he will be working for us and not against us. Do not lose heart. Turn from your sin. Find complete forgiveness in Christ and by the power of God's Spirit, start again living to please God with your body. Uh, Having urged the Thessalonians in one specific area to please God, Paul then moves to a second. Love among believers. Paul speaks of the love the Thessalonian Christians have for one another and for the church right throughout Macedonia. Paul urges them again, keep it up, keep it up. Love among believers is a distinctive mark of God's people. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples If you have love for one another. The love the early Christians had for one another. Had a great impact on those around them. It's reported that third century Romans. Would say about the Christians. See how they love one another. I wonder. Are we known by our love? For one another. Or is the Christian church known more for our fights, our divisions, disagreements, anger? What did love look like in the Thessalonian church? Well, Paul says in verse 11 that they are to lead a quiet life. Mind their own business and work with their hands. What does he mean? Well, it's helpful to know that there were some in the church who had heard about Jesus' return. So they'd stopped working and sold their possessions because they thought his return would happen immediately. And then when it didn't happen, others needed to support them. 
leading a quiet life may mean not being unnecessarily intrusive in other people's lives. The problem here in the Thessalonian church seems to be that some are neglecting their own work and meddling in the work of others. This is what Paul is referring to when he urges them to mind their own business. Paul says that one way to love others is to work with your hands. Again, the problem is that some to whom Paul is writing is that they are unwilling rather than unable to work. There's a difference, isn't there? They're unwilling rather than unable to work. The scriptures affirm that that work is a good thing. And we're not just talking about paid work. There is lots of work that is unpaid. But Paul is saying that there is value in working for the benefit of others. This is one way that love can show itself in action. John Stott says, True, it's an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it's also an expression of love to support ourselves, so as not to need to be supported by others. So what do these verses say to us in terms of our love for one another? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're a person who tends to be overly interested and wants to know everything that's happening, this passage might be telling you to mind your own business. If, on the other hand, you're someone who is comfortable with your own world, you don't want others to bother you, and you don't want to bother others, then this passage is pushing you to move towards your brothers and sisters in a spirit of love. At the end of our passage, Paul urges the Thessalonians to live this way in order to win the respect of outsiders. There's good evidence that Paul's missionary work took place at his workbench. He was a tent maker. As he was cutting and sewing leather, opportunities would come to speak of the Lord Jesus with his co-workers and his customers and others. They could hear the message and see its impact on his life. Paul has already told us that the word of God was powerfully at work in the life of the Thessalonians dynamically transforming them. And so Paul is saying that by their life and work, through their everyday conversations, others would see how the gospel has changed them. He's urging them to live and work so that others can see the reality of the gospel in their lives. Paul urges us, 
to live and work so that others would see how the gospel has powerfully transformed us, how it affects every part of our lives. You see, in Thessalonica, people noticed changed lives. No more religious ceremonies, no more sexual immorality, no more cheating. The Christians worked hard. They took care of others because of their love for them. And so Paul encourages them, keep it up. Continue to live this way, pleasing God in response to what he has done for you. Live this way, a way that reflects the love of Jesus for others. It's a sacrificial life that Paul is urging them to live. A life of love that looks to the interests of others. Why do we pursue it and not give in to our selfish desires? Well, it's because we follow the one who sacrificed himself for us. Jesus did not decide to watch out for himself, but for others. And because of his great love for us, we're we're called to imitate him, that others might know his love for them. So, who are you going to please in life? Who are you going to live to please? Well, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust the culture around you that shifts and changes and marches to the beat of its own drum? Are you going to trust the latest movie? The latest John Law's piece? Or are you going to trust the one who made you who loves you, who knows you better than you know yourself. The one who is so committed to this world that he entered it through a cradle and paid for the sins of the world through his death, rose again so we might know life forever. God is the one to be trusted, the one to live to please, Because he first loved us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love and your mercy that you've shown to us. Thank you that you have saved us to live lives that honour you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to please you in all areas of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.